morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sun Up with the Colorado Sun. It's Wednesday, December 6th. Today, we're talking to Sandra Fish, a Colorado Sun politics reporter who put together a Sunfest panel on race, Colorado history, and local authors. Before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsor. On December 5th, First Bank and Colorado Gives Foundation are proud to present Colorado Gives Day, a one-day online fundraiser for local nonprofits. Since 2010, people just like you have raised $415 million, and over $53 million was donated last year alone. To elevate giving, First Bank and other sponsors have contributed more than $1 million to amplify every donation made, which makes Colorado Gives Day easily the best day to give. So let's start a wave of generosity. Donate at coloradogivesday.org. First Bank. Banking for good. Member FDIC. Now let's go back in time with some Colorado history. In December 1848, John Fremont and his men, including Charles Press, Alexis Godey, and guide Bill Williams, faced a daunting task in the snowy San Luis Valley. Their mission? To explore a transcontinental railroad route after the U.S. acquired California. Opting to cross the Continental Divide directly, they endured harrowing and deadly conditions. Trapped by deep snow, they resorted to eating their mules, and horrifically, each other, with ten perishing. The survivors, including Fremont, barely escaped, their ordeal marked by cannibalism and extreme survival. This disaster tarnished Fremont's reputation, often overshadowing his subsequent achievements as California Senator, Railroad Surveyor, the first Republican presidential candidate, first Governor of the Arizona Territory, and Union Civil War Commander. Despite his notable career, the 1848 tragedy remained a haunting legacy. Before we continue, right now you can support the Colorado Sun in a big way during our winter membership drive. When you become a member now through December 17th, Colorado Media Project will provide a one-to-one match to double your impact for a total of $5,000 in matching funds. Join now at coloradosun.com join. Next, our feature story. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is another edition of the Colorado Sun podcast, uh, Sun Up. Colorado, and thanks for joining us. I am Tamara Chung. I'm a business reporter here at The Sun, and we've got uh, Sandra Fish with us today. She is one of our politics reporters, and we are actually not going to talk about business or politics. So, Sandra, uh, welcome. I mean, we we all like to call you Fish. So, Fish, welcome to uh, the podcast today. It's and good to be here, Tam. We're actually talking about a session you uh, moderated during our first Sunfest session in September. Tell us about it. Well, yeah. And okay, we are going to get into politics eventually. But when I'm not politicking, thinking about politics, I, I do a lot of reading. And I read a couple of books recently about Denver 100 years ago. One of them is written by a friend and former colleague from the University of Colorado, Patricia Raybon, called Double the Lives. It's the second in what's going to be a three-part history mystery that's set in 1923 Denver and told from the perspective of a young Black theologian who's initially trying to solve her father's murder and then becomes a private detective because she reads a lot of Sherlock Holmes. That made me go over to Alan Prendergast's Gangbuster, 
which is about, it's a nonfiction book about the DA during that time, the Denver district attorney who was pro- prosecuting first white collar crime or, or sort of this, these scams that were prevalent at the time. And then he went after the Klan. Both of these books really involved the Klan and looking at sort of the racial and ethnic dynamics at the time. So it's a really interesting conversation to have. And one of the things we talked about was the similarities in Denver, Colorado, and even the nation now and a hundred years ago, and what people should be thinking about, what lessons they could learn about this. So let's listen to a clip, about 10 minutes, I think, of Alan and Patricia talking about that era and what we can learn from it. My um, intrigue with all of this, in addition to um, thinking about what was in the paper, what, what, what coverage of the Klan was going on, was looking at what, what was in the paper in general about race. And what I found were um, humor columns about um, darkies who dance. There was, a, there was a syndicated column called Darktown that ran in papers all over the country and, all, and in papers all over Colorado that would show a little snippet of black life ridiculed with kind of a Jim Crow black language with a joke at the end. That was common um, newspaper um, entertainment. That was common. The other thing that was common were announcements of minstrel shows the Lions Club, the, the United Methodist Church, the West High School, it, all, all of these people are, every weekend you can find a minstrel show underway somewhere, and not just in the 1920s, but uh, up into the 50s and 60s, people in black, blackface. Um, and so the idea that, um, as one analyst said, the idea was that darkies are funny and, it, and if they, that's how they are shown in stories, that's must, that must be how they are. And either from a lack of imagination or lack of will, that was the, um, that was the um, atmosphere of the day. And so when people say that the Klan poisoned Colorado, actually, Alan says it very well, that the Klan um, the Klan exploited the uh, fears that people already had about immigrants and uh, blacks and Catholics and, and, and Jews. The Klan struck that match and Klan fever took off. I mean, that's one of the really interesting things. It wasn't just black people that they didn't like. Any Catholics any people who were Jewish, you had to be a white Protestant from certain countries in Europe to gain their approval. It was make America great again. <laughs> if, you read, if you read the um, Klan newspaper, which was the, the Rocky Mountain American, which was published monthly in Boulder, by the way, um, the message that um, you see is that 
These are people who um, will leave us a mongrel race if we associate with them, if we intermarry with them. At the time, the um, anti-miscegenation laws were on the books in 38 of the uh, 48 states at the time, including Colorado. And, um, and so the Klan just folded in to what was already in the spirit. In this, and so it, um, that is an important, um, important point for us in the state and everywhere to acknowledge. It's the Klan is, uh, um, you know, easy to blame, but the spirit was in it, in the room anyway, and they took advantage of yeah. it. You know, I want to talk about how this applies to the present day. And Alan, 1924 was an election year. 2024 is an election year. And can you talk about the impact the Klan had then? And, and Well, yeah, what was interesting to me, I mean, it's, it's eye-opening, really, to see this develop so rapidly. I mean, again, but 1922, when Van Sys first begins investigating them, they're a kind of quasi-secret society. They're pretending to be a fraternal order like the Masons or something like that, but obviously there's this white supremacy thing you really can't get around, and it's, it's only particular white supremacy at that. So, um, but, but within two years, suddenly they have this widespread support. How did that happen? And that's something I really try to get at a bit in the book. Um, and it has to do with, I, I think, you know, in a sort of, uh, the, I mean, the, the prejudice is certainly there. there. There are fault lines of paranoia and fear and things like that that they're tapping into. But there's also a certain contingent that I would not call them true believers. I mean, they, they, they were opportunists, and they saw that as this group got to be more and more power that, that maybe there was something in it for them. This was true because the Klan was, the Klan in Colorado was not like the Klan in some of the other states where they went into massive vigilante actions. I mean, there were some efforts, that, there were some beatings, there were some intimidations, there were things like that letter to the janitor. But the Klan in Colorado as a rule was not as violent as say the Indiana Klan where the, the guy running it eventually got charged with second degree murder and raped and mutilated this woman. Um, the Klan in Colorado was much cagier and much more adaptable and willing to change its message at a, at a given moment to, to attract more people. I mean, there was really, Locke was interested in power. And that's what they did over a period of a couple of years. They pushed economic boycotts. They, they, had, they encouraged small businesses to get involved. And it's like, we're going to protect you from these other people. They were, you know, using these divisions that were out there. Um, to their advantage and trying to get white Anglo-Saxon Protestants to sign up uh, and, and saying there was something for them economically in that. And I think that was a very powerful weapon that Vance Ice had trouble. I mean, he, 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 he eventually was able to expose the extent of their influence, but they still won the elections. And they were very good at electioneering. They were not very good at governing, but they were very good at getting elected. Patricia, would you take away from that time that we should apply to the present? 
probably the uh, most important one is to be aware. The, um, I was talking to, to my husband, uh, wave down my husband about that this morning. Um, yes, a lot of people were clan members and a lot of people felt pressured to join a lot of people, businesses and so on. If it existed at all in Colorado, it was because of the people who said nothing, who did nothing. And I think about uh, that Martin Luther King letter, uh, the, the Birmingham jail letter that said, you know, the problem isn't the people who are, are the, uh, doing this, who are the racists. The problem are the people who are standing back and watching it and not saying anything. And so for me, that is the lesson that we um, don't be, become part of those people. I think about the uh, Niemöller letter. Um, they came, first they came, you know, remember that poem? First they came for the uh, communist, and I wasn't a communist and I didn't say anything. Then they came for the trade workers. I wasn't a trade worker, so I didn't say anything. Then they came for the Jews. Then, they, you know, and he goes down the list. Then they came for the Catholics, and then the final stands a line in that point was, then they came for me, and there wasn't anybody to stand up for me. And so, um, you know, it's a good lesson, I think, st uh, poems still st taught in high schools, and I hope, and discussed. But uh, we are in the season of book banning and pushbacks on teaching history, and, um, and we can watch it, or we can become people who stand up and say something about it and, and do something about it. And that's the lesson. Yeah, I, I would agree that the silence was deafening. And in, in, in a lot of, that's what it is in a lot of the media. You didn't find this stuff in the papers. I mean, a lot of what was really going on. Um, and and, and there's so many overtones of what's going on now. I mean, I, I, there was a primary race where the Klan candidate for governor had to run against another, a very popular Republican rancher on the Western Slope. He refused to bring up that his opponent was a Klansman because he didn't want to give aid and comfort to the Democrats. You know, Van Seis was a conservative Republican. He watched his party get hijacked by these people, and he couldn't get, these, he couldn't get the mainstream, old-style Republicans to speak out about it. That's very damning to me. On the other hand, uh, the thing I take comfort from looking at this sort of history is, I mean, the, the story of Van Sy's resisting these guys is only one of many stories. I mean, there was, a, there, there was a whole separate effort in the black community resisting the Klan. And when they burned a cross on the lawn of the NAACP leader, he responded by arranging the national NAACP convention in Denver, right in the face of the Klansmen. Um, and there were, you know, there were instances in the Jewish neighborhood and in the Catholic community of resistance to the Klan. A lot George, of these stories haven't been told. George Norlin, um, if anybody is a CU uh, graduate or know about George Norlin, he was pressured to, by the Klan to fire all faculty who were Jewish or Catholic. And he refused. And, um, and then the, the state legislature, which was heavily Klan, pulled funding from the university. And Norlin um, did everything he could to keep the university going. And so. That's a great story. If, you're, if you've studied at CU or walked across the campus, you see his name on the, the library building. But how many of us know that little piece of the yeah. New Orleans history? That's it's, fascinating. It's
they both got to this point of writing these books from an event in 2008 that they talk about some. And it's, it's a pretty interesting conversation. And you can go to our YouTube channel, just coloradosun.com slash YouTube, and find it by searching for City of Secrets and Lies. And, you know, worth a listen, a watch. And it's great to be here on The Daily Sunup. And check out thecoloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. The town of Carbondale is looking to tap into geothermal energy to help provide heating and cooling in part of town, starting with the drilling of a 500-foot deep hole downtown to test out the approach. The project was launched with a $700,000 grant from the U.S. Department of Energy. A coalition of local government and community groups will work with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory to design a system they say could potentially serve a 16-acre area. Carbondale has a goal of being carbon neutral by 2040. New trails planned for the top of Rabbit Ears Pass near Steamboat Springs are driving a community debate highlighting the tension between opening new terrain for recreation and safeguarding the environment and wildlife habitat. The conflict centers on the Mad Rabbit Project, a U.S. Forest Service plan to increase the number of recreational trails atop Rabbit Ears Pass. The Mad Rabbit Project dates to 2013, when local voters approved a ballot measure that directed lodging taxes, estimated to exceed $5 million over 10 years, to help build trails. A Forest Service plan released in August has done little to quell the dispute. Children who grow up in foster care in Colorado have lower graduation rates than any other group, including kids who are homeless. Colorado Department of Education data shows that only 30% of foster teens graduate from high school on time. Now, a Colorado Springs nonprofit called Kids Crossing is working to turn that around with the help of a tutoring program focused on foster children. The program, launched in 2022, is so new there's no data yet to prove that it's helping kids finish school, but the individual stories of success are powerful. Visit coloradosun.com for more details. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. The Colorado Sun is nonpartisan and completely independent. We're always dedicated to telling the in-depth stories we need today more than ever. And the Sun is supported by readers and listeners like you. Right now, you can head to coloradosun.com and become a member, starting at $5 per month for a basic membership, and if you bump it up to $20 per month, you'll get access to our exclusive politics and outdoors newsletters. Thanks for starting your morning with us, and don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. Tomorrow.